0: You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for June 2016. Today's episode is titled, The Wisdom Imperative. Wisdom from God is required to properly understand and respond to the consequences of sin that impair mankind's ability to obey God's calling, both individually and organizationally. Therefore, for both individuals and organizations to deliver products and services with excellence, divine wisdom is an imperative. Consequently, it is essential that every worker in the organization be humble before God and seek, with unwavering faith, divine wisdom to solve problems that impede the organization's efforts to deliver excellent value. One role of management is to model this faith through humble submission to the divine imperative by seeking God's wisdom to properly address problems. Management should then train every stakeholder in the organization in how to develop a steadfast, humble, submitted, teachable, and prayerful spirit of faith before God that will facilitate the requisite wisdom to deliver excellent value to those the organization serves. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, The Wisdom Imperative.
1: Well, good morning. This morning we want to talk about uh, the book of James, continue our conversation out of James chapter 1 starting with verses 5 going through verse 8. And then we're continuing to talk about the testing of our faith, and now we're talking about the wisdom that's needed when you deal with a test. Now, a test is always a test of your worldview because your worldview drives how you see reality and therefore how you live in reality. So when we talk about testing of our faith, we're talking about testing of our worldview. So let me read this text real quickly, and then we'll give you some introductory comments and talk about the text. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting or with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now this is a continuation of what, what he talked about in the first few verses of the book where he talked about counted all joy when you encounter various trials and difficulties in life because really these are divine setups to build you up. And so the key in trials and tribulations is not escaping the trial or tribulation. The key is actually to grow through it and know that God wants to perfect you or sanctify you through it. So let's just remind ourselves about this book and about how James is thinking. You know, the very first topic there on trials and tribulations introduces the whole idea of of the Holy Spirit sanctifying us, purifying us, and it brings us back to the whole idea of salvation, what it really is. And salvation really has three tenses to it there's a the past tense which is you have been regenerated you've been born again and that's the sovereign work of the spirit where you now you now enter into the process of being saved and you're positionally perfect the moment you are regenerated but you are practically now a work in process where the holy spirit's going to chisel on you through the course of life and through the experiences of life to perfect you And that's the present tense aspect of salvation. That's called sanctification. And that's a, that's a phase where the Holy Spirit is at work and we also have a role to play and it's called obedience. We're called to be obedient to the commandments of Christ. And then finally, the end result of all this will be the future tense aspect, which is glorification, not our glory, but Christ being glorified in and through us. And that's when we will be delivered from the very presence of sin. So the past tense is when we are delivered from the penalty of sin. The present tense was when we're being delivered from the power of sin. And the future tense is when we ultimately will be delivered from the very presence of sin. So those are the things that are kind of intimated in that first, those first few verses, starting with verse 2 going through verse 4. Now let me remind you again the audience here. These are Jewish people who have been dispersed, and if, you, if you're knowledgeable in the Old Testament, you know the dispersion happened because the Jewish people were disobedient to God, and this was God's judgment on them. They were people that were people committed to the word of God. So presumably these people, even though they're Jews in dispersion, they were very sound theologically. Many of them lived in places where synagogues were established. You see, the synagogues came out of the need for the message of the Old Testament to be spread to the Jews in exile. You see, before the exile, they had the temple and everything focused around the temple. So the synagogue structure developed after the dispersion happened. You see, once the dispersion happened, you know, the Jews never did reconsolidate back in, in Israel or in the promised land. They had, they to this day remain dispersed throughout the world. So these, these Jews were presumed to be theologically sound, theologically grounded, and so James could write this book without a lot of concern about giving them theological background. They, he knew that they knew the theological background, so he's not going to spend much time talking about theology. He's going to talk about the implications of theology. Now, these Jewish people being dispersed like this, they were most likely slaves in the various places they were in because the Greco-Roman culture was such that they, they disdained work. They viewed work as uh, beneath the dignity of them as Roman citizens, and so they used slaves to do the work. Well, so it's most likely that these Jewish people who were dispersed among them were probably slaves, and they were probably the work per, work people of the day. So James is really writing a book to workers, to people that were engaged every day in commerce, trying to, to build and sustain the culture. The The Greco-Roman culture was also very polytheistic. They had a view that, that the universe was driven and governed by these gods who were a little more than superhumans. They weren't really divine deities as we think of them. They were more just superhumans. And they were whimsical and unpredictable and impersonal, which means you didn't have a relationship with them, and they wouldn't listen to you there's no communication with them. you were just kind of um you know victims of whatever they decided to do so when there was a war or there was a bad storm, they viewed that as the gods warring against each other and disturbing the physical world so there was very mystical uh you know kind of view of of God and That's the context in which Christianity now is birthed in. And Christianity is going to, you know, bring a whole different view of God. Number one, it's not polytheistic. It's monotheistic. And number two, God is personal, not impersonal. Number three, God is far more than human, not just a superhuman. He is deity. He's a God who is a creator. Furthermore, God is, the God of the Bible is not whimsical and unpredictable. He is very, he's timeless. He's unchangeable. He is a, a God you can build your life on and count on. So they know a God totally different from the God that dominates the cultural thought that they're in. Keep in mind that to the, old, to the Jewish people dispersed throughout the world at that time, their scripture was the Old Testament. And in the book of James, he refers to the Old Testament scripture as the law or the word. And, of course, uh, the common terminology they would use for Old Testament Scripture was the the Greek word graphe. Graphe means the writings. So the Scripture was the ultimate book. In fact, Bible means book. So it was the ultimate book, and then every other book was just a subset of that book in some sense, or you might say a commentary on the book. And the degree to which any other book had any value was the degree to which it It provided true insight into the book, and I think that's true even today. We put a lot of emphasis on books today, which I think that's wise, but we need to recognize what what books are. There is one book, ultimately, and that is the Word of God, the Bible, and everything else is a commentary on it, and it only has value to the degree it it illuminates the truth in the book so that's true of my book or Dennis's book or anybody's book we are simply trying to provide perspective on what we think the book says now the book uh the, the epistle here of James is written uh in the style of wisdom literature of the old testament some have argued that that James effectively is the proverbs of the new testament and so there's just a series of of admonitions and commands that are given In fact, the book is built around about 60 commands. So as we go through the book, we'll be pointing out these commands. About 54 times of the 60, the commands are actually given in the imperative mood in the Greek language. So the imperative mood is the mood of a command. The other times, uh, the commands are in the indicative mood. The indicative mood mean it's factual, but the indicative mood can imply a command. So about five or six times it appears that the the indicative mood is used with an implication of a command. So that's why we come up with about 60 commands in the epistle. Now, as we think about commands, we have to remain very clear about what the gospel is because it's very easy to be misunderstood and very easy to be wrongly criticized. When we recognize that salvation is by grace through faith alone, it raises the question, what role do commands have? And there are some that say the commands have nothing to do with anything anymore because we're saved by grace and obedience to anything doesn't matter. That is not the message of Scripture. In fact, if you put any credence into what we call the Great Commission, which, as you know, I think is a misnomer, I think it's it's the discipleship mandate. It is not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is the creation mandate of Genesis one It is the overarching mandate for mankind for all time. The the discipleship mandate is necessary because man is impaired by sin and therefore cannot obey the creation mandate. So we need Christ to come and deal with the sin in us so that now we are able and empowered to be able to obey the creation mandate. So I think we have to understand those relationships. And what the Old Testament was all about was a testimony that man could never do enough good works or could never be obedient enough to the commands of God to be acceptable with God. Only Christ could do that. So when you get clear on that, then you recognize that commands are not about you getting acceptable with God. The commands that we're charged to obey are about responding now to the grace of God that's been given to you. You are born again through the choice of God to, to choose you and to regenerate you, and now your only proper response to that is to is faith in Christ and now a willingness to submit to the Lordship of Christ. And so that's what this book is about. It's about the Lordship of Christ living under that Lordship in every area of life. In this particular text now, we have the next three imperatives, the next three commands that are given to us, and they're all very tightly connected. There's a command for wisdom. There's uh, to ask for wisdom. There's a command to ask for wisdom in faith, which means that you believe in the goodness and veracity of God and keep in mind the polytheistic view of God that the Greco-Roman culture had. Had no view of a goodness good God or a God that was truthful. They were whimsical gods. Whimsical gods are totally unpredictable. You never know what they're going to do, when they're going to do it. They have total freedom to be self-contradictory. Uh, the god of the bible is not self-contradictory he is internally consistent with his own nature and so and we have to recognize that what real faith is is we're believing in this these qualities of the nature of god that are revealed in his creation and are revealed in the word of god so that's asking you know for wisdom and faith and then we have to recall remember that we cannot assume that if we ask for wisdom and doubt that We will get it. And doubting, keep in mind, is when you don't believe what's true about God as revealed in revelation about God. And doubting is very easy for all of us. Uh, simply because, you know, the original sin of Genesis 3 begins with doubt. It tells you right there that the doubt is very easy to get into. And so we have to be very vigilant about recognizing when doubt comes up in our heart, when we are actually beginning to experience doubt in some situation or some circumstance. So these are the three imperatives that are introduced here. Now, the way that, that this text is structured is we have now what's called a first-class condition in the Greek language. There are four four types of conditional clauses in the Greek language, and the first-class condition is a condition that assumes something to be true, and then there's a consequence that will also be true as well, so this is all about truth so here's the here's the assumption if if anyone if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. So that's something we think we we can do that that and we are in fact we're mandated to do that's an imperative it's not It's not a request, it's not a suggestion, it's a command. You let him ask and you let him ask because you have a God who gives freely and without reproach. So this idea freely means that he's generous, he's, he's gracious, he's merciful, he's kind, and there's no criticism that goes with it. He just gives generously. So as you look at this, you recognize, okay, we have a God that's mandating us, ask for wisdom, and my goodness, we're going to need it because all these different trials and tribulations that God has given to us to sanctify us Are challenging. And as we talked this morning and we shared this morning, each of us has got challenges in our lives that we don't fully understand and we can't fully, you know, comprehend how to respond to them. But you know, we're called to ask, ask God, Lord, give me wisdom. Give me discernment. How do I handle this problem, this relational issue? How do I handle the situation with the, the body, the body of Christ that you've assigned me to? How do I handle this workplace scenario? How do we go forward and help the SLA alumni? There's lots of questions that we don't know, and they're, they present challenges to us. They, they cause us, you know, concern because we know that on some level we're not lining up well with God. And so we ask for that wisdom, and we can trust that he will give it. He will give it. Now, we may not see it immediately. We may not fully understand it immediately. We may have to look back and say, oh, well, he did answer that. I didn't see that he answered it at the time. And so part of faith is knowing that when we ask, we will receive. So sometimes we have to say, Lord, okay, I know you've responded to this. I just don't see it. Give me the grace to see it. And he will do that too. He is a loving, benevolent, good God. That when you ask, He will respond. He is a, He responds graciously. He gives you what you need. Now that doesn't necessarily mean you get what you want. Because many times our wants are all about our flesh. Our, our sin nature. He gives us what we really need. He answers the prayers properly, biblically. And that's the best way to answer it. Then the second command is in the next verse where He cautions us. Don't, but let Him ask in faith Not doubting. A doubt is when we waver in our view of God. We are not clear that he's really who he said he is. We might think, well, he's not really there. He's not listening. He's not kind. He doesn't hear. He's not personal. You know, or he's whimsical in some way. No, he's none of those. He is a personal. He is a dependable. He is a sovereign. He is a kind, gracious, merciful God. Who is predictable. And we see this in uh, verse 18 where he talks about how all the gifts, the good and perfect gifts come from above, from a God who is, who's unchanging, unvarying. He's not like the sun who rises and sets, but he's like the sun and he is very predictable. He's very knowable. He's very, you know, you can, you can anticipate and know that he will do something really good. So we have a God here who we can count on. We can totally count on, and we need to know in every situation, even how perplexing, how painful, how difficult, we can count on Him. So doubt is any time when we fail to count on God. We've always got to be di- diligent about counting on God. So if we do, if we do doubt, if we fail to believe in who He is and how He works, then we're we're like that wave of the sea being tossed and driven by the sea. So he uses a metaphor here of the sea, which they would have all easily understood, that, you know, the, the sea is going up and down, is chaotic, and you never know what's going to happen next, and it's difficult to do anything in that environment. But we have a God who is not chaotic, who is very predictable, very dependable, and very kind and gracious. And then he goes on with, a, with another command, which again clarifies it even more. He said, now, don't let anyone suppose or presume or assume that you'll receive anything from the Lord if you ask in doubt, If because you are double-minded. If you're double-minded, you will be unstable. You will not be able to make right choices. You will be skewed in your ability to make right choices. This is exactly what you see in the fall of man in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. Eve doubted. God, she entertained the doubt. The, the serpent, you know, who was Satan in, you know, incarnate in form of that certain the serpent came and said, did God say that you may not eat of the tree that's in the midst of the garden? And that's true. He did say that. So, but he introduced the doubt. Did he really say that? Did he really tell you that? Eve immediately, she entertained the doubt. And she goes back and rehearses what God said, which was she said true, but she engaged. I think that's the the point here. Whenever doubt rises, you cannot engage with doubt. You have to reject it immediately. You can't get to rehearsing things. You just immediately stop it. Cannot entertain any doubt that is contrary to the truth of who God is and how he works. If you do that, you will become double-minded. You'll begin to question. You'll have, you'll wonder, well, is God really do that or not? And when you become double-minded, God does not respond to that. That is not a good place to go. So we have to get very clear the proper way to ask for wisdom. First of all, we're commanded to ask for wisdom. And secondly, we must do it in faith, always trusting him, no matter what the circumstances, no matter how hard, how difficult, how painful, we trust him. Now, as we think about the, the theology involved here, you know, it's, there's a lot of theological issues to consider. Uh, but probably one of the greatest things is just recognizing how God is so different from all the other gods. There is no other worldview that has a God. And by the way, every worldview has a God. And every person has a worldview, which means every person has a view of God. So but there's no other worldview that has a a view of God like Christianity, a God who is dependable, reliable, predictable, who's loving, who's gracious, who's kind, who's merciful, who gives good gifts to his people. And good gifts are gifts that line up with the character and nature he's trying to form in us. So if God has put you in a situation and you've asked him to relieve that situation like Paul did when he said, I asked the Lord to remove that thorn in the flesh. There's nothing wrong with praying that, but you recognize when God says no, that it's good. It's good because God said, my grace is sufficient. I don't need to remove it. I'm not going to remove it because it's doing good things in you. Each of us probably has situations or thorns in the flesh that we wish we didn't have them, but it's good. And so we've got to be very, very clear on the reality of how God works and what, what he does and how he does it. And we have many examples of this book about, about the character and nature of God and how he works with us. You know, starting with, you know, in, in chapter 1, verse 18, we have the reality that he gives us revelation. He reveals things to us. He illuminates things. And, he, and as we get to know him, we learn he's personal, loving, good, benevolent, unchangeable, dependable, predictable, merciful, purposeful. All these are wonderful things about how he works. We learn also in verse 18 of that he, he is the one that regenerates. It's interesting, he doesn't spend much time in this book. In fact, only one reference in this book to the past tense aspect of salvation, and that's in chapter 1, verse 18. He presumes that the readers know that, that they understand that. So he's not going to spend time on that. He What he's dealing with is the sanctification aspect. He realizes they don't really understand sanctification well. So that's where he spends his time, going through regeneration. In chapter 2, we learn that God is one whose whose mercy is great, and mercy trumps over judgment. What a wonderful thing. If mercy didn't trump judgment, none of us would be saved. And we also learn in chapter 2 the value of understanding the relationship between faith and works. Obviously, there was confusion about that, and he makes it very clear. No, it's no confusion at all. Your works reveal your faith, period. End of story. That's the way it works. So if you say you believe in Christ then you're going to live under the lordship of Christ, period, end of story. You know, I heard people today, I hear people today thinking that, well, I, I accept Jesus as Savior, but I haven't accepted him as Lord. Sorry, that's not a biblical idea. <clears throat> that's not in Scripture. Scripture says that if you've accepted Christ, you have accepted him as Savior and Lord, both. And so now you have to learn how to live under his lordship. Chapter 3 talks about wisdom from above. You know, there's a lot of pseudo-wisdom called worldly wisdom, but it's not real wisdom. So God is benevolent, and he gives us illumination of true wisdom, your wisdom from above. In chapter 4, he talks to us about things like competition, and he talks about his desire to relate to us and how he's got, he has a passionate desire to relate to us, and we need to humble ourselves, and as we humble ourselves, we get more grace from him, even more gifts. He talks about the wisdom that we need to really discern our assignments in the workplace. What a gift that is, that that comes from God. He talks about the healing of physical maladies. God cares about our physical condition, and he does respond to prayers of healing. And he even has a process for correcting us when we get off course. Chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, the last two verses in the book, are rich and giving us revelation on the reality that we are to be one another's keeper. So the theology that's embraced here about a personal God is very very rich. God also knows that our we have a fallen condition. And so even though he has a high bar that he wants us to ask without doubting, he doesn't he doesn't he recognizes that there will be doubts and so he allows for that. And we have several examples in scripture of where people doubted and nevertheless, God is still there, and he's working with him. For example, there's a father, the demonically oppressed man in, in Mark 9, verses 17 through 25, and his son is just doing all kinds of crazy things because he's demonically oppressed. And what happens is then Jesus comes along, and his disciples couldn't do anything about this, and so Jesus was kind of uh, direct with his disciples, talking talking about unbelieving people. And then he turns to the father and says, you know, all things possible for him who has faith. And the father cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. What a great prayer. That is a great prayer. And Jesus responded to that. So there you have a person in doubt and saying, I am doubting, help me. And God responds to that. What a great gift that is. How about Peter when he's walking on the water? You know, Jesus said, you know, come on, Peter, you walk on the water, come on. So Peter walks on the water, and as soon as he gets his eyes off of Jesus onto the, the storm, which represents the circumstances of life, he begins to sink. What a great picture. That was doubt coming into his life, in his heart. He said, whoa, I'm out here on this water, and there's a storm all around me. And we all get into that kind of thinking. That's doubt. And he able, was able to say a kind of a similar kind of prayer to the man with a demonically oppressed man, When he's, when he said, help, that's kind of saying, I'm doubting, help me. And of course, Jesus responded to that. And probably the, the similar example of doubt that, that didn't disqualify people was when Jesus called his 11 to meet him, uh, on the mountain in Galilee, where he was going to give them the discipleship mandate, which really is the solution to sin. So mankind can really now obey the creation mandate. And it says of those 11 disciples, That they worshipped him, but some doubted. Nevertheless, he went on and gave them that great discipleship mandate, even though some doubted. You see, God recognizes doubt will be part of our fallen condition, and he makes allowance for that. So don't hear this asking for wisdom uh, without doubting as such a rigid thing that God can't deal with us doubting. But we need to be quick to repent when we doubt, quick to say help, quick to say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So that's I think that's a key thing. Hopefully it's encouraging and hopefully it's admonishing as well. Now, as we talk about the application of how do we apply this text, this truth of this text, I think there are a number of things that we can look at. We all need wisdom in all areas of life for personal governance family governance, church governance, workplace governance, and civil governance. We all need wisdom. There's no end to wisdom. And we're told, would you, would you have a, a situation, a trial, a tribulation, something coming at you, and you don't know what to do, you need wisdom. The imperative is you ask for wisdom and faith. And if you doubt, you need to be quick to repent of that doubt and say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We all need that. That's a general application for everything in life. We also have to keep in mind a very interesting reality, and that is the, the question of authority and influence. You know, I, I think it's very, um, it's very interesting when you start thinking about the whole idea of influence. You know, we need wisdom to solve the problems of life. And many of us have probably wrestled with our influence greater than anything else, but we may re- wrestle with authority as well. Well, I think the first thing you want to be very clear on is whatever authority you have, God's given it to you. So that's a divine assignment. And you want to be very faithful to exercise that authority well. So my my admonition is you've got any kind of issue in a realm where you have authority, you need to be asking the Lord for wisdom immediately and asking, trusting that he will provide that for you. So that's very important, and then you exercise the authority under his guiding hand, and you exercise well obediently what he wants you to do in that sphere of in, that fear of authority and by virtue of doing that, you will build a reputation as people watch you function, watch you live, and they will be influenced by your life. Now we have a culture today that in Christianity is trying to wrestle with how to understand the creation mandate, and one of the things that's happened is we have a, a model that's that's developed. It came from Lauren Cunningham of YWAM and Bill Bright of Campus Crusade. It's called the Seven Mountains Model. You may have heard that, and it's really all about areas of influence. That's kind of what they stressed. They didn't seem to understand the jurisdictional authority very well, and so – While this is a step forward in the sense that they're recognizing that Christianity is beyond just getting somebody saved, it's really getting people engaged in their assignment. And this certainly is a step forward in that direction. It is not a complete step. The better step is to recognize, you know, to bring the kingdom of God where you have authority and recognize where God's assigned you authority and live now in light of of Christ in you, the hope of glory in that area of authority. But influence is still important because we do have areas where we don't have authority over, and the key, I think, to the influence is by living under authority well. So that's, that's the way I connect those two dots, and I want to encourage you to give that some, some thought and ponder that as well. Finally, one other application I think is very important as we consider the workplace is we have in the workplace an idea that's common uh, about about practices in the workplace, and that is the whole idea of best practices. That seems to be what most people view as authoritative in the workplace. Now, if you're a believer in Christ, you believe, believe the Word of God is authoritative. It's not best practices. However, you can have best practices if those best practices are filtered through the Word of God. Then they can be biblical best practices. That would be a godly way to see it. That would be a wise way to see best practices in the workplace. And so, I want to just give you some examples of worldly wisdom and just quickly contrast these to uh, the, wis- the uh, to biblical wisdom. For example, there are many people who think God doesn't care about the workplace; that the workplace is just uh, independent of God and just functions on its own. Of course, we view. The God has been very engaged in the workplace, and the Bible is a handbook for business, which that is just almost unheard of by most people. Another example of worldly wisdom is that God has nothing to do with work. Work is beneath the dignity and the interest of God. He's interested in higher, more significant things. Well, that's, again, nothing's further from the truth because we find, for example, in chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, that God has a will for the workplace, a will. He has a will of what he wants done and when he wants it done, where he wants it done, and how he wants it done. He's got a will. And that means strategic planning is really about focus on on, not maximizing profit, but maximizing alignment with God. It's a totally different view of how to plan. Another example is success. Success is, you know, conventionally, you know, best practices would say you measure success by money, how much money you made. If you made money, then God must be blessing you. It must be what he wants. Not true God's definition of success is alignment with him another another uh, measure of of uh, success is growth. the fastest growing you know God's not in the fastest growing God is into measuring out resources to us to throttle the growth to align with His will and his ways. so the proper growth is what God wants done It's not as fast as you can it's what God wants done and Another very common, uh, you know, best practice today is the assumption that greed is good. That originated with Adam Smith and his Wealth of Nations, and it was popularized in recent days by this fictitious character Gordon Gekko in Wall Street, who, who gave one of the famous business speeches on the, on the, the cinema. And uh, he, he talked about how greed was good to purify and cleanse and maximize and all that stuff. And, of course, biblically, you know, greed is not good. Greed is sin. Greed is being discontent with God's provision. The reality is you want to be content, not greedy. So you can see I've just given you several examples of common best practices, and very hopefully very easily you can see that's worldly wisdom. That's not the biblical wisdom. We want divine wisdom. We get divine wisdom about everything in life from asking God, who works through both Special revelation in the scripture, general revelation, and specific revelation, which is specific insight from the Holy Spirit. Those three sources of revelation then to answer our prayers for wisdom and guide us and direct us into where he wants us to go. So wisdom is a wonderful tool. It's the skill to live life well. It's a skill to take the knowledge of how God's universe works and to apply it in such a way that we can bring alignment with the purpose of God. To fulfill our roles in the meta-narrative according to his will and his way. So God says it's an imperative. You ask for wisdom when you lack wisdom. Don't think. Don't think that I'm not interested. I am very interested. I'm a personal God who will give you what you need. I command you to ask me. That's what he's saying to us. That's an amazing thing. A command to ask for wisdom. How dare we not do that? That is just disobedience when we don't do that. So may the Lord give us grace to really line up with this and to learn to ask quickly in faith without doubting. And when we doubt, to quickly repent and say, Lord, help us. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. May the Lord give us grace to do that and do it well for his glory and honor. In Jesus' name.